How good is Australia? There's fucking language. Let there be a thousand blossoms blooms as far as I'm concerned. But I ain't spending any time on it. Don't stop wearing the Speedos. You're listening to Decode, the Batuta Advocates podcast series for those Australians who have tuned out or never tuned in to the dark arts of federal politics. It's called being, you wouldn't believe it, a goddamn bloody adult. Hello and welcome to News from the Trough, the Batuta Advocates weekly show where we like to wrap up all of the news that has been happening in the Trough, aka Canberra, the world of federal politics. I'm Wendell Hussey and joining me for another week's news is our arts reporter turned political correspondent, Les Burley from down in Canberra. Thanks for joining us again. Happy to be here. I was locked away for the budget for the whole of last week mm. and I've re-emerged the same day yep. that the sun came out on Sunday and now I am absolutely sunburnt, but happy to be here. Yeah, can see you are sporting a nice shade of pink there. Look, it hasn't been the biggest few days in politics, but there's still been plenty happening and plenty of us to talk about. There's been allegations of bullying and racism levelled at the Prime Minister. We've had the budget reply from the Labor Party and Anthony Albanese, and there's a few other little things to touch on. So we're going to get into it, and we're going to start off, as we like to do, with our uh, quick hits to get into it before we touch on the meat of the week. First up, we have our quote of the week, which probably couldn't be anything else. It is from Michael Toke, the man the Prime Minister Scott Morrison beat to pre-selection for the seat of Cook down there in the Shire. Michael Toke is a prominent businessman down there in Sutherland, and he offered up this quote this week saying that Prime Minister Morrison, during their pre-selection battle in 2007, was adamant and explicit that a candidate of Lebanese heritage could not hold the seat of Cook, especially after the Cronulla riots. Pretty damning stuff. Yeah, it's not a good look for the Sharkies fan, Morrison, is it, you know, saying something that explicit? No. We will go through this in detail later in the the back and forth. He's to come out and said this didn't happen, but then other people have come out and said it did happen. So we're going to go through all of that a bit later because it is a juicy morsel mm. of gossip. Yes, it's um, certainly created a few headlines. Morrison's had to defend himself. People within the party have had to defend him. It's caused a whole lot of drama and um, caused a lot of news stories, as you might have seen over the last few days. So it's a big one that we will touch on later in the episode. But now uh, we move on to our clangor of the week, and it is from the Deputy Prime Minister, Barnaby Joyce, who said this on Q&A last Thursday night during an exchange with Jackie Lambie, which raised a few eyebrows. The first house I bought cost me $67,000. To which Jackie Lambie and Jim Chalmers, who is the Labor shadow treasurer, shut down pretty quickly. Listen to this. Jesus, Barnaby. Barnaby, I don't know what planet you're on, but you're looking at 600000 bucks now, no, and that's I'm, on a good day yeah, for income. It's, it's, so it's good saying. news, everybody, because Barnaby bought a cheap house a yeah. long time ago. Your, your life's a maid. Yes, uh, real, dare I say, boomer comments there from Barnaby Joyce, the old, uh, I bought my house for $67,000 all those years ago, so it should be pretty easy for you. Obviously, a lot of people are sighing. Like, I know that that stuff used to fly and still does fly in certain sectors with people, uh, you know, particularly older Australians who feel like they worked hard and they got their house and everyone can do it if you just try hard. But as Jackie Lambie mentioned there, 
The prices of houses are a lot more than $67,000 and wages are not a lot more than they were when Barnaby was getting around buying his property. So um, just another classic comment. I think it does show just how out of touch Barnaby Joyce might be in regards to these kinds of things. Pretty stupid comment. I know that there are a lot of people who like saying these sorts of things, but it was probably better for Barnaby there to just sit that one out and talk about the cost of living and what they're trying to do to help with housing affordability, but just couldn't help himself there, could he? No, it's reminiscent of not knowing what the cost of bread is, isn't it? Mm. Bit of a theme emerging. Yeah, a bit of a theme there, Les. Now, our rogue unit of the week is from one of our favourite political characters, the Honourable Bob Carter MP... The cowboy from up in Kennedy in North Queensland there. When discussing what he wanted from the government uh, after the next election, what would be on the top of his list of priorities, national security came up and Bob Catter said this. Now, I would immediately move to providing a rifle for every single boy and girl too if they want them in an armoury in every single school in Australia. Now, if that sounds extremist... That's what Israel does. That's sure. what Finland does. That's what Sweden does. But That's what Switzerland does. What, what would you call compulsory? No, service? no, no, no. Uh, sensational stuff there from Bob uh, calling for teenagers, kids to be given guns and just let rip. What do you make of that, Liz? Yeah, look, you can't argue that he doesn't know what he wants. You know, he's clear. Mm, yep. It's not a policy that I expected to see in this election cycle, but it's one that we've certainly seen. Yes, uh, it could be a new favourite of mine. Well, you know what they always say, Les, you know what can stop a global superpower with millions and millions of guns is a few good kids, a few good teenagers with guns, so arm them up. Worth noting, though, that the stuff that he was saying about Sweden and Switzerland and Finland, actually not true. It got, it got proven that they don't give kids guns. They're not allowed to have guns under the age of 18 there. But no, um, Kata... Catter was since questioned about that and said he was talking more generally about gun ownership and the right to bear arms in those kinds of countries. So an interesting one. I will also say it was a really interesting pivot. He's talking about the big issues he wants to he wants to push after this upcoming election with the next government. And um, he immediately went from giving kids at school guns and providing armories for schools to talking about securing up our national fuel supply and um, ensuring that we have enough fuel so we're not reliant on global markets, which was a really interesting pivot there from him that he just completely changed, as he likes to do, which was great to see from Bob. I'm just glad to see that we're diversifying our education strategies here in Australia. You know, like within a couple of years, kids will be driving forklifts and shooting guns. It's going to be great to see, I think. It certainly would change up Wednesday sport as well. You know what I mean? Go for a hit of cricket or go do some PE. Yep. Maybe let's get a nice L1A1 out there, bang, 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 and um, rip in. Would make make for a bit of entertainment. But, yeah, I, I don't know. Don't know if you'll be able to get that one over the line, but keep pushing it, Bob. But I ain't spending any time on it. Now, let's get into the main topics um, from this week. Last week, we came to you with a budget wrap-up. Josh Frydenberg uh, unveiled his fiscal plan for the country. Anthony Albanese got his reply on Thursday night. You were down there covering that. Les, talk us through it. 
Yeah, so as always, so whenever a federal government uh, presents a budget, the opposition get the opportunity to present what is called a budget reply. So although this process Mm. happens every year, Albanese used this specific reply to outline what the Labor Party would do if they were to win this upcoming election in May. And so his speech was very much an opportunity to go, you've heard what the Liberals will do, this is what we're going to do. His speech was a lot less khaki than uh, mm. what we heard from the Liberal Party. An Australia, a boundless opportunity. An inclusive Australia that celebrates our rich diversity and values our multiculturalism as an asset. So he was really trying to paint a picture of, you know, a point of difference between this other speech that was a lot more Mm. kind of looking to the future and he really lent into you know a future vision of Australia that isn't to say that he didn't take as many swings as the Morrison government as he could he spent plenty of time giving them a lot of shit Mm. instead of this decade old government being part of the solution they're part of the problem and instead of this prime minister stepping up taking responsibility and helping he runs for cover and blame someone else. I won't go missing when the going gets tough or pose for photos and then disappear when there's a job to be done. Yes, and he also referred to the budget as a fake tan, I believe, which is an interesting analogy there from Albo. wonder if he has ever fake tanned himself. It was an interesting one. I think, as you said, it was very much uh, just trying to insinuate that the Labor Party is now a safe pair of hands. I didn't get the sense that there was anything grand or ambitious in that, you know, nothing like um, getting rid of franking credits, negative gearing, all that sort of stuff that we saw at the last election. It was very much, we're going to do a lot of the stuff that the Liberal Party did in terms of handouts and um, trying to ease the cost of living, etc., etc. But the main theme that I got from a lot of what Albanese was saying was we're going to try and do the same stuff. We're just going to do it better. We're going to fix it and we're going to try and be the safe pair of hands that we need for the country in this trying time. That was the vibe I was getting from Albo. So, you know, Josh Frydenberg, our treasurer, very handy tennis player back in the day, semi-professional, played against the likes of Philippousis, I believe, a few other notable names. His... Budget speech last Tuesday, I reckon, is a pretty firm first serve down the tee, down the middle of the court there. This from Albo felt like pretty strong forehand return, put it back into the one of the corners and just got Frydenberg moving. You know what I mean? Frydenberg came out there strong. Albanese's just hit it back in there and has kind of put the ball back in your court. We're going to do... A lot of the stuff you're doing, but we're going to try and do it better, which was an interesting one. Quick side note, I find it interesting that they don't get the shadow treasurer to do the budget replies because it is, it's a financial thing, right? So why not have the shadow treasurer? Why have the opposition leader? Yeah, I don't know what the ruling is around that. It might be an old archaic tradition. There Mm. are many in parliament. Um, And so, uh, yeah, it also might have just been a decision on their behalf around, you know, Albo being a recognisable face. Um, So people Mm. are more likely to tune in and listen compared to the shadow treasurer. So, yeah, yeah, an interesting way that it plays out there. Yeah, so as we just spoke about, there wasn't a heap in terms of really big, grand announcements. The two major things that we were getting out of this really was aged care announcement and childcare announcement. 
cheaper childcare, stronger Medicare, and tonight at the heart of my third budget reply is our plan to fix the crisis in aged care. With aged care, um, they've proposed a wage increase for aged care workers, which is something Mm. that the Morrison government hasn't committed to. And it's something that a lot of the unions and nurses are currently fighting for. They also have proposed a requirement for residential aged care facilities to have a registered nurse on site 24-7, seven days a week which is pretty wild that that isn't already a thing. So essentially they've taken, you know, like the the Liberal policy was there, but Labor is spending a lot more money and committing a fair bit more to aged care compared to the Liberal Party um, proposition that we heard on Tuesday. Yeah, so $2.5 billion um, that they're promising. And you're right, it's an interesting one about having a nurse on site 24 hours a day. It's one of those ones that people hear, I think, and go like, huh, what? That wasn't already a thing, but I think that's where the aged care sector has got to, and that's why we had royal commissions detailing all these horrific things which haven't been properly rectified. Uh, The government did announce uh, a fair few billions going towards aids care last year, but Anthony Albanese has come over the top and promised a little bit extra. The wage increase, I think, is a big one. Currently, it's only $21.97 an hour, which is $2 more than the minimum wage, which... I think most people can agree is pretty fucking crook. Like that is a hard job. You know what I mean? That is a tricky, tricky job. It is a really intense job and it should be a skilled job as well. It takes a Mm. lot of, you know, there's a little bit of medical skill. There's a lot of emotional skill that's looking after Mm. people. And a lot of people pay a lot of money to have Mm. their families or themselves in these homes. And so you expect that money to be going towards the right things. And that's why there has been such a public outcry around aged care over the last couple of years, especially with some of the cracks that COVID highlighted even more deeply. And the other big announcement that they made was childcare. So in a similar vein, they're trying to make childcare much more accessible for families. And it's also buying into the idea of the cost of living. So if childcare doesn't cost you as much, you have more money in your pocket to pay for groceries, to pay your mortgage or for rent, and to pay for rising petrol costs. And so they are proposing that they lift the maximum childcare subsidy rate to 90% for families for the first child in care. So the government would subsidize the bulk of that fee which is pretty significant. And then they've also spoken about increasing the subsidy rates for every other child as well to a slightly lower level. They claim that 96% of Australian families will be better off with this, whether that's the actual number, you know, is yet to be kind of fact-checked, but that most families with children and childcare will benefit from this in some way. So it was, a, it was a strong pitch, definitely about giving things and providing things and improving things, I thought, as opposed to the previous pitch, which was a lot about, we're going to take this away, we're going to scrap this, we're going to move things around. So yeah, um, rather than anything seismic, just providing these new things, which were interesting. It was a little bit like Frydenberg's budget speech in the sense that there was a few things that were quite light on in detail. So it'll be interesting to see what happens if they do, in fact, get elected in a few months' time. But I ain't spending any time on it. Now, we should cross to the other side of the floor and talk about these allegations that have been levelled at the Prime Minister by that Sutherland businessman we mentioned at the top of the show, Michael Toke. It's all got pretty juicy, as you mentioned, Les. 
Yeah, so back in 2007, when they were trying to figure out who should run for the seat of Cook back in pre-selection times, Scott Morrison was up for pre-selection, as was Michael Toke. And there was a bit of back and forth around who would get it. And obviously, Scott Mm. Morrison got it. And now he's our prime minister. And so you can see a very clear, you know, chain of events from this situation of him getting pre-selection to him being the leader of the Liberal Party and our prime minister now. The allegations that have come out are pretty damning if they are true. There are allegations that during this pre-selection period, Morrison told people that Tote couldn't run in that seat because he was Lebanese and a Muslim. And this is something that's been reported back only now through kind of secondhand Mm. information. So Morrison has come out and he's adamantly denied these allegations. And this is what he had to say. I think I've been very clear. I absolutely reject that as malicious slurs. And so these allegations were actually provided in statutory declarations into an investigation into pre-selection a few years ago, but the media's got hold of them now and they've been able to publish them. It all comes back to this 2007 pre-selection debacle, right? So there's lots of rumours have always swirled around how Morrison got in and how it worked because Morrison grew up in Bronte. He's an eastern suburbs boy. He loves rugby union. He loves red wine. That's where he's from. That's kind of his persona. He has moulded the whole Sharkies footy-loving, beer-loving, pie-loving guy, but initially he is from the eastern suburbs of Sydney. He's moved down there to the Shire. He's running for this seat of Cook. And Michael Toke was actually hugely popular. So they had a ballot before deciding pre-selection. And Toke won 82 votes to the Prime Minister's nine, I believe it was. So he absolutely smoked him. He was wildly popular. It looked like Michael Toke was going to get in. Then this backgrounding started to happen from Morrison. And he starts talking all this shit about Michael Toke behind his back. And the state executive Mm -hmm. intervenes and they have another vote and Scott Morrison then wins a second time and gets pre-selection. And so, yeah, these allegations have come out that Scotty's been talking pretty hectic shit about someone behind their back, which is not an endearing trait. I don't think there are many people that like people who talk shit about other people behind their back, especially when they're saying pretty hectic shit like this, which is racially motivated and also is bullshit as well because Michael Toke... Not a Muslim, as Scott Morrison was saying, which is some weird, like, crusade-level language. You know what I mean? Muslim, like, that's old-school shit. Yeah, Muslim with an O, not with a U. Like, very old-school kind of, yeah, colonial colonial stuff there. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And And we know that the Shire is very, very white. You know, it's a it's a predominantly white area down there in the Shire. Most people around the country are aware of that. But, yeah, it all kind of looks pretty gross from Scott Morrison when you look at it now in hindsight of what's been happening in terms of pre-selection around Australia, allegations of bullying and so on and so on. People within his party have come out to back him, though. Michael Suka, he came out recently and said, as one of the few Australians of Lebanese descent in Parliament, I feel compelled to weigh in on the recent media reports concerning Scott Morrison. In my experience, there is no MP, let alone PM, who's shown more support, care and respect for the Australian Lebanese community. So as you said, there's been lots of back and forth and kind of mudslinging. As we mentioned at the top of the episode, Michael Tack did come out and say that 
you know, Scott Morrison was adamant and explicit that a candidate of Lebanese heritage could not run in the seat of Cook, especially after the Cronulla riots. And that's the really big clincher for me. I don't know about mm. you, when, but like that's that's a bit of a, you know, like let's not stir the pot with putting this person in here. That's really leaning into the dog whistling uh, whiteness of the Shire, kind of trying to stir up Absolutely. racial tensions. You can't have a Muslim sitting in your seat. It's just pretty, pretty hectic. Also on that same day, he was approached by a Channel 10 news reporter just on the street and onto camera, mm. he said... Do you think he's lying? I think it's pretty obvious he is. Um, and he's got form on that. Just ask Tony Abbott, Malcolm Turnbull, Emmanuel Macron, you know, there's a few people who've... Um, Barnaby Joyce called him out as a compulsive liar. So on the eve of an election, having all these claims from all of these people inside the party on top of the Favanti Wells stuff we had last week, just the build-up of this muck being thrown at him in terms of being a liar, a racist, and a bully, not ideal when you are hoping that people are going to vote for you in a couple of months' times at the polls. Yeah, it's not ideal at all, and I really don't know how he'll get out of this over the election campaign. Like you've said, Mm. too many people from within the party. It's not like it's Labor throwing this stuff around. It's people within his own party and people who are Mm. resigning left, right and centre. And so it's going to be interesting to see how he kind of digs himself out of this hole and if more things come out as well now that there's kind of steam behind this narrative. Yeah, it's an interesting one. It is in terms of the media noise there is heaps of noise about this sort of stuff and it's not a good look and people will make up their own judgments ultimately there won't be anything that can happen as a result like he's not going to get not get pre-selection or he's not going to be hauled in front of an inquiry or anything like that they're just allegations that he was a fucking dodgy bloke when he was trying to get pre-selection 15 years ago and he used some pretty dirty and underhanded tactics so yeah it'll be interesting to see how the public receives it and how it continues to play out but I ain't spending any time on it. Now, the last topic we want to touch on this week is a news story that's kind of been fizzling away in the background. The ABC had a big segment on it on 7.30 a few days ago. It's been picked up by The Guardian. There's calls for an inquiry and all this sort of stuff. It's about the Emissions Reductions Fund Carbon Credit Scheme. Basically, a guy who helped design the scheme and was in charge of auditing it has come out and claimed that it's all bullshit. He said that 75% of the credits being given out under this scheme are dodgy, and he alleged that it was pretty much just a sham. Now, wanted to touch on this because it is one of those stories that, you know, we've got the Emissions Reduction Fund Carbon Credit Scheme, and we've got all these different acronyms and jargons, and it's all kind of a bit complicated to try and figure out and make sense of, but it's essentially a multi-billion dollar scheme, which the guy in charge of running it is alleging is giving out dodgy carbon credits to people and giving out millions, hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars essentially, worth of money to people who aren't deserving of it or companies who aren't deserving of it. So, you know, it seems like there's a lot of dodgy shit going on and obviously a lot of wasted money because if he's saying that 75% of these carbon credits that are given out are bullshit, well, obviously people are getting their pockets lined and it's actually going to negatively affect us trying to reach that incredibly, incredibly ambitious 2050 net zero emissions target that we've set ourselves because obviously if these carbon credits aren't legit, we're not reducing our emissions as much as we are promising the rest of the world that we'll go and do. 
So it's worth noting that the guy who has blown the whistle on this, his name is Andrew McIntosh, and he's actually a law professor at the Australian National University down there in Canberra. He's allegedly respected in the international community in regards to all these things, and he's actually essentially been pretty closely aligned with the coalition government in the past, right? So he's been on the board of the Climate Change Authority and its review into offsetting emissions by heavy industry and agriculture. He was on the government's Bushfire Royal Commission panel and he was for seven years the chair of the Emissions Reduction Assurance Committee, which is basically the government body that's in charge of making sure that all of this stuff is legit and watertight. So he's been closely aligned with the federal government and on side with the federal government and friends with the federal government for the last kind of decade, right? So it's not like he's a purple-haired lefty from Newtown who's coming out and attacking the government for its position on climate change. He's been inside the beast, he's worked with all of them, and now he's coming out and saying this whole thing is crook and 75% of the carbon credits being given out in this scheme, which is costing billions of dollars, aren't legit and we need to change it, which is a pretty damning allegation, right? Yeah, it's not good at all. Like this is someone, like you said, who's closely aligned with the government. And basically, just to explain what's going on here. So my understanding is that the premise of this emission reduction funds carpet credit scheme is that credits are given out to people to either regrow vegetation where it's been chopped down or to not chop down vegetation in the first place. And this bloke, Andrew McIntosh, who was formerly in charge of the scheme, says that they are being given out to people who were never chopping down trees at all or to people who are growing trees where they shouldn't be grown and might not last, so might not survive, might not actually reduce the carbon emissions that we are putting out there. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, we've got big landholders saying, oh, we're going to run a chain through that, we're going to chop all that vegetation, which they were never going to chop down, and then they're being given carbon credits to not chop down that vegetation. Or, as you said, they're being grown in areas where it's actually not suitable. They released a map, and you know how you look at the map of Australia from space and they, you know, obviously colour code it. You can see that we've got all the trees along the east coast and the west coast and the south coast, you know, near the coast, we've got all the trees, and then it becomes increasingly shades of red towards the inland, right, where we're getting mm. arid, we're getting deserty, we're getting not great environment for growing trees. Famously, the desert. Yes, famously the desert, hot, not great, not a lot of vegetation growth around there. Then you look at the map that they've released, right, and a lot of the projects that have been getting carbon credits, very close to the more red parts of our centre, quite far away from the coast. So a lot of these projects, and that's what McIntosh is saying, that trees are being planted there, they're being put up where they shouldn't be, where they're not actually going to reduce emissions long term. And so the allegations from McIntosh about all of these credits being given out, and he's saying conservatively 75% have issues with them, whether they're you know, major issues, minor issues, 75% have issues. And so on top of this affecting our ability to meet our emissions reduction targets, there's also the angle of what he was saying was basically wealth transfer to individuals, aka the government giving people, landholders, company, large amounts of money from the taxpayer coffers for these emissions reductions projects, which isn't deserving. 
The cherry on top of it all comes that the energy minister who says that everything is ship shape is Angus Taylor, a man who notably set up a company which later sold water rights to the government to the tune of $80 million with um, the estimates saying that it was worth at least less than half that, potentially not even close to that whatsoever. He wasn't a director of the company at the time. He left that when he went to politics. But this company that he set up banked $52 million in profit from water rights from the government. Again, it's another one of those examples where the government is basically purchasing things off landholders and companies with not a lot of checks and balances and huge amounts of potentially taxpayer dollars being wasted. And it just doesn't really pass the sniff test. A lot of people look at it and go, that seems fucking dodgy. So now we're getting allegations of billions of dollars potentially being given out in dodgy, dodgy grants and a guy like Angus Taylor saying it's all ship shape, we don't need to see anything here. So it certainly kind of raises raises a few eyebrows and raises a lot of concern about what is actually going to happen as a result of this. Yeah, and given what we've seen in recent years with sports rorts, car park rorts, water buyback schemes and all of the other things, it makes you fairly sceptical of what is actually going on and Mm. what we're going to hear about it in the next few months. Yeah, the Labor Party's climate change and energy spokesperson Chris Bowen has said that the carbon credits scheme was very important and that he's promised a short and sharp review of the scheme if they win the upcoming election. So hopefully... There are renewed calls. If they don't win the election, there are renewed calls to have this investigation regardless because obviously if we're wasting hundreds of millions or billions of dollars, something needs to be figured out and something needs to be rectified. Because the man actually in charge, the man who replaced Andrew McIntosh, is a former gas, coal and oil lobbyist. Had a role with the Minerals Resources Council of Australia. So yeah, it's an interesting one to have the guy who's auditing these schemes come from the Mineral Resources Council of Australia. Not sure he would have Australia's climate change obligations and concerns around obligations at the forefront of his mind. So an interesting one there. Now, I think that's all we've got time for today. Les, hopefully... By next week, we will have a firm election date called. I know we've said that the last few episodes. (laughs) We've um, been hanging out for it. But it still hasn't happened yet. As we mentioned, 18th April is the final date. has to be called. We'll have a definite date by the 18th of April. But for now, we'll just keep on hanging out, keep on waiting for that final day to be announced. Waiting and wishing, my friend. Waiting and wishing. Well, look, hopefully we get clarity next week. But for this week, that's all we've got time for. Thanks very much for your company. Have a good week and we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. See you next time.